Continuing today in our studies in Genesis, we come to the end of chapter 46. We'll be reading a sizable portion uh, of the text today, reading through to the end of chapter 47. Picking up today in chapter 46, as Jacob and his family are coming down and meeting Joseph in Egypt, and uh, we will hear today of the settlement of the family in the land of Goshen, beginning chapter 46, verse 28, and reading to the end of chapter 47. You can find that beginning on page 40 of our ESVs if you picked one up on the way in. Before we go to the Lord's Word, let us go again in prayer and ask His blessing upon its reading and hearing. Let's pray. Gracious Lord and God, You are kind to give us Your Word. You did not need uh, to speak Your will to us. It would have been just to leave us groping in the darkness of our sin and without way to find uh, back to You. And yet You have graciously revealed Yourself. Lord, we pray that as we come to Your living Word, that You would work by Your living Spirit to give us life in Jesus Christ. Help us to see something of the Gospel. Help us to see the promise of Uh, gospel life in Jesus as we read these words and we see your faithfulness among your church in the Old Testament. Help us, O Lord, to rejoice in who you are and what you will do in us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Hear now God's word as we find it, beginning in Genesis chapter 46, verse 28. He had sent Judah ahead of him to Joseph to show the way before him in Goshen, and they came into the land of Goshen. Then Joseph prepared his chariot and went up to meet Israel, his father, in Goshen. He presented himself to him and fell on his neck and wept on his neck a good while. Israel said to Joseph, Now let me die, since I have seen your face and know that you are still alive. Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household, I will go up. And tell Pharaoh, and will say to him, My brothers and my father's household, who were in the land of Canaan, have come to me. And the men are shepherds, for they've been keepers of livestock, and they have brought their flocks and their herds and all that they have. When Pharaoh calls you and says, What is your occupation? You shall say, Your servants have been keepers of livestock from our youth, even until now, both we and our fathers." in order that you may dwell in the land of Goshen, for every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. So Joseph went in and told Pharaoh, My father and my brothers with their flocks and herds and all that they possess have come from the land of Canaan. They're now in the land of Goshen. And from among his brothers he took five men and presented them to Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to his brothers, What is your occupation? And they said to Pharaoh, your servants are shepherds as our fathers were. They said to Pharaoh, we have come to sojourn in the land, for there is no pasture for your servants' flocks, for the famine is severe in the land of Canaan. And now please let your servants dwell in the land of Goshen. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, your father and your brothers have come to you. The land of Egypt is before you. Settle your father and your brothers in the best of the land. Let them settle in the land of Goshen, and if you know any able men among them, put them in charge of my livestock. 
Then Joseph brought in Jacob, his father, and stood him before Pharaoh, and Jacob blessed Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to Jacob, How many are the days of the years of your life? And Jacob said to Pharaoh, The days of the years of my sojourning are 130 years. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life, and they have not attained to the days of the years of the life of my fathers and the days of their sojourning. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out from the presence of Pharaoh. Then Joseph settled his father and his brothers and gave them a possession in the land of Egypt, in the best of the land, in the land of Ramses, as Pharaoh had commanded. And Joseph provided his father, his brothers, and all his father's household with food according to the number of their dependents. Now there was no food in all the land, for the famine was very severe, so that the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan languished by reason of the famine. And Joseph gathered up all the money that was found in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan in exchange for the grain that they brought, and Joseph brought the money into Pharaoh's house. And when the money was all spent in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan, all the Egyptians came to Joseph and said, Give us food. Why should we die before your eyes? For our money is gone. And Joseph answered, Give your livestock, and I will give you food in exchange for your livestock if your money is gone. So they brought their livestock to Joseph, and Joseph gave them food in exchange for the horses, the flocks, the herds, and the donkeys. He supplied them with food in exchange for all their livestock that year. And when the year was ended, they came to him the following year and said to him, We will not hide from our Lord that our money is all spent. The herds of livestock are my Lord's. There is nothing left in the sight of my Lord but our bodies and our land. Why should we die before your eyes, both we and our land? Buy us and our land for food, and we with our land will be servants to Pharaoh. And give us seed that we may live and not die, and that the land may not be desolate. So Joseph bought all the land of Egypt for Pharaoh, for all the Egyptians sold their fields because the famine was severe on them. The land became Pharaoh's. As for the people, he made servants of them from one end of Egypt to the other, Only the land of the priests he did not buy, for the priests had a fixed allowance from Pharaoh and lived on the allowance that Pharaoh gave them. Therefore, they did not sell their land. Then Joseph said to the people, Behold, I have this day bought you and your land for Pharaoh. Now here is seed for you, and you shall sow the land, and at the harvest you shall give a fifth to Pharaoh, and four-fifths shall be your own, as seed for the field and for food for yourselves and your households, and as food for your little ones. And they said, you have saved our lives. May it please, my Lord, we will be servants to Pharaoh. So Joseph made it a statute concerning the land of Egypt, and it stands to this day that Pharaoh should have the fifth. The land of the priests alone did not become Pharaoh's. Thus Israel settled in the land of Egypt, in the land of Goshen, and they gained possessions in it and were fruitful and multiplied greatly. And Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years. So, the days of Jacob, the years of his life, were 147 years. When the time drew near that Israel must die, he called his son, Joseph, and said to him, If now I have found favor in your sight, put your hand under my thigh and promise to deal kindly and truly with me. Do not bury me in Egypt, but let me lie with my fathers. Carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burying place. And he answered, I will do as you have said. And he said, Swear to me 
and he swore to him. Then Israel bowed himself upon the head of his bed. Thus ends the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. May he add a blessing to its reading and to its hearing. Well, it happens at least once every few weeks that I am reminded that I am not actually a native New Englander. This past week it happened at soccer practice and all the kids were playing and I was engaging in small talk with one of the other dads and we got to the question, where are you from? And I asked him and he named some town I've never heard of. Normally I would, oh, okay, and that would be the end of it. Uh, but he said where he was from and then he said, do you know where that is? No. <laughs> nope, I have no idea. And he told me, and it turns out it was just two towns over. It turns out that that day I had driven through his hometown. But yet another reminder that I'm not actually a native New Englander, along with the fact that I cannot bring myself to call a shopping cart a carriage, along with the fact that not a single person in my family owns a pair of duck boots. I may live here, but I am not from here, and that is a big difference. I think uh, that Jacob's family got that. By the end of this chapter, they had been living and working and multiplying in Egypt for 17 years now. You imagine maybe Asher out in a field somewhere having small talk with one of the locals, and he says, I'm from Kasut. You know where that is? And nope. Sorry, I'm not from here. At least for a few generations, I think that's what they would have said. They pitched their tents there. They were in Egypt, and and they engaged in work and commerce there, and they did all the things that you do in Egypt, but they weren't actually from there. They weren't natives. They were visitors, perpetual visitors, resident aliens. The biblical word is sojourners. They were sojourners in Egypt, and we saw that twice in our passage. That's what they were. God's people were sojourners in Egypt. They were always living with that expectancy somewhere in the back of their minds that the Lord was preparing some other place for them, some land of promise where they would be brought out and they would dwell with Him in safety. And they would be close to Him where He is. And the, the subtext, even though the whole passage that we read today was about Israel settling into the land of Egypt, the subtext is that it's all meant to be temporary. Because God's people were living in the world as sojourners. And the same is true for you and for me. On the night that he was betrayed, Jesus told his disciples, Behold, I am going to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare it, I am coming back, and I will take you to myself, that where I am, you will be as well. And that means that you too, if you belong to Christ by faith, you are a sojourner in the world a temporary resident of a transient existence waiting for his promise to be fulfilled. With God's help, I want to look together today at several aspects of what it means to be a faithful sojourner as we walk with the Lord. We see this modeled for us in our text. The first aspect of faithful sojourning is that we should walk with the Lord in integrity. If we are a sojourner with him, if our hope is on what he will do, then we ought to be honest and open about that. We ought not to hide who we are and what we're waiting for and what we're longing for. 
We see this modeled for us in Joseph as he brings his family into Egypt. And the first thing that he does after that very quick and almost anticlimactic meeting with his father, we've been building to that, by the way, for 10 chapters. The beloved son is gone, and if only I could see Joseph again, and it's over in two verses. And there's a chariot ride, and there's a long cry, and another one of Jacob's woeful statements, now I can die. And it moves immediately to let's get things straight. Let's settle into the land. And Joseph gathers his brothers, and he wants to make sure that they will have their stories straight before Pharaoh. Now, normally when people do that, it's because they're trying to hatch some plot, some lie. And they want to make sure that the details of this person's lie lines up with the details of that person's lie so they won't be found out. But that's not what Joseph is doing. He wants to make sure that when his brothers come before Pharaoh, they will tell the truth. He knows what his brothers are like. He's proposing a new era in the family of Jacob. I'm going to go and prepare the way. I'm going to tell Pharaoh that you're all shepherds, and when you come in, you tell him you're shepherds. Don't hide anything. Don't don't try to deceive in any way or gain something extra for yourself. All we need is to tell the truth about who we are and what we're doing and what we're looking for. And so they do, and they come in. This is a new era in this family, and you could... Go all the way back to Abraham and Egypt and Isaac and Gerar. The way that the the forefathers of these men who are now standing in Egypt uh, went into foreign territories and they lied to protect themselves. And they sometimes put their wives in precarious positions. And then after them came Jacob, the heel grabber, the twister. And his life went from one plot to another plot, from one con to another con, and it's no surprise that his children followed in his footsteps, and we've heard already about Simeon and Levi and their deception so that they could slaughter the entire village of Shechem. And we've seen Judah giving Tamar false assurance, yes, yes, just wait, I'll send my third son to you, just Just hold on, but it was all a deception. And we know the ten brothers hiding behind this bloody cloak and lying to their father for years. And Joseph says it's time to do something else. We need to have some integrity in Egypt and in our sojourns. Now he is clear with these brothers that their integrity is going to come at a cost. They will have something to gain for it. He says in verse 34 of chapter 46, 46-34, he says that when you come in and you tell the truth, this will be the key to you dwelling in the land of Goshen, which is really where you want to be. But it's going to come at a cost because once you tell them that you're a shepherd and that your whole family are shepherds, they're going to look down on you. It's not exactly going to make the best first impression. Can you imagine these brothers coming to the place where their brother is second in command? And all the possibilities that lie before them, I bet there are cabinet positions open for the taking. And they can hobnob with all the intelligentsia in Egypt, and they can go to the best parties, and they can get the best jobs, and they can have the highest position in the land. And Joseph tells them, when you come in, you need to share with them the one detail that will make sure that you will never penetrate Egyptian high society. Tell them that you're shepherds, so that they will look down on you. You can imagine 
the temptation for Joseph's brothers to find any other way to do this. And you can imagine that because you know that temptation. It's the same temptation that Christian sojourners in post-Christian New England face every day. Maybe they will think well of me if I simply hide something about who I am and what I'm longing for in this world and, and what I'm doing and who I believe in. Let me just hide one little piece and I'll be that nice, unobtrusive neighbor that doesn't believe anything wacky or strange or supernatural. And you go into your college philosophy class and your professor is there and he's talking about the myth of Christianity and aren't we all so much better off now that nobody actually believes that stuff? And you want to raise your hand and say, actually, I believe that stuff. What is everybody else going to think about you? You work in some biotech startup and all of your colleagues have PhDs in biology and chemistry and what would they think if, you be, if they knew that you believed that the Lord created all things out of nothing in the space of six days and all very good as the Westminster tells us. That guy's a crackpot. Can you believe he's working here? We're men of science. Don't talk to him. Or maybe it's the small talk that you have with that neighbor and it's just innocent little chit-chat, and they say, you guys have planned for the weekend. What's going on? What's exciting this weekend? And the most important thing that happens in your household between Friday and Monday is worship of the living God on the Lord's Day. But instead, you want to say, oh, we're going to have some ball games. I've got to cut the grass. I've got some projects I want to work on. They, they don't need to know the other piece because if you share that, they're going to think you're really weird. But we need to have integrity in the world because that's what sojourners do. We're faced with the temptation to hide something of our faith. But that's not what sojourners do. That's what spies do. That's espionage. You fly under the radar. You play the game. You escape to live another day. But sojourners live in the open with who they are and what they're doing. Now, I realize that has some pretty big implications, especially as we're praying for brothers and sisters in a place like Jordan today. And what would it mean for them to live in the open with who they are and what they believe? And there is wisdom that is involved, and there is tactfulness that needs to be involved, and you need to discern who and how and, and, and when you make yourself known. But if we're willing to stand here week after week after week and pray for Christians in closed countries that they would be bold for Jesus, shouldn't we be willing to walk in integrity ourselves as well in the midst of our sojourn? This is the first thing that we see, that sojourners walk in integrity with the Lord. Secondly, there is also an element of separation. It's interesting to note the way that now for two chapters, Pharaoh's been pretty non-committal about where exactly it is the Israelites ought to settle in the land. He, he simply gives this blanket, open invitation. The land is yours for the taking, Joseph. Whatever you think is fine, that's okay, I, wherever. Give them the best. If it's Goshen, let them have Goshen. He's completely non-committal, but Joseph is fixated. 
Joseph probably had the Zillow app loaded onto his iPhone, and he got an alert every time something came open in Goshen. Here's another one. He is fixated. He has to get his family into Goshen. There's no other place for them. And we want to say, what's the big deal with Goshen? Well, it was the best of the land, uh, as it tells us in the text. Geographically, it was perfect for a, a shepherding family from Canaan. If you follow the Nile River as it snakes northward uh, toward the Mediterranean Sea, just past uh, the, the cities of importance, Cairo and Memphis at the time, where all of the pyramids were, it begins to split into tributaries, and it's known as the Nile Delta. And between those tributaries is the most fertile region uh, in Egypt. Always well watered, always good land to be had. And Goshen, well, it was all the way on the eastern side so that, I don't know, in maybe 430 years, if the Israelites had to make a quick exodus, they've already got one foot in the right direction. It's already closest to Canaan. It was the perfect place, but it was also isolated, which made it even better. You notice what he said to his brothers. This is why you want them to look down on you. This is why you want to be an abomination in their eyes so that they will just say, go over there. Here was Joseph probably living in Memphis, the capital city at the time, and he doesn't want his family right where he is. In fact, whereas Pharaoh told uh, Jacob and his family, you don't even have to bring your things. Don't worry, we'll give you new things. Joseph tells his family, bring your flocks and your herds. Because if you show up with flocks and herds, that basically guarantees that you can't stay in the city. You need somewhere out in the boondocks, somewhere removed from the press of the city and the epicenter of Egyptian pagan culture. You want to be somewhere all on your own where you can raise your families in the fear and the admonition of the Lord, and nobody is going to, to bother you about that. You don't want that constant pressure of Egyptian society weighing on you. In fact, this was the whole plan all along, well before Joseph came along, that God would take his people and put them in Egypt, and he would isolate them as a sort of incubation chamber. This is what he told, uh, he told Abraham years ago. In Genesis chapter 15, Abraham asked, how will I know that I shall possess it? And then you remember there is the cutting of the animals and this, uh, this covenant ceremony, and this is what the Lord replies to Abraham. He says, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and they will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years, but I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. As for yourself, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. What was Jacob's family doing in Egypt? They were being separated not only from the Egyptians but from the Canaanites. And just like a premature baby is put into that incubation chamber where the, the glass keeps them safe and the lights keep them warm and they're close to the doctors and the medicine and the things that they need until they are strong enough to face the world, the Lord was taking his people and putting them in Goshen as his, as his own little incubation chamber to grow them as a nation within a nation with their own identity, 
not intermixed with the nations around them. And so Joseph says, come down, be an abomination. Don't feel like you have to intermingle and be, you know, culturally on point and, and, and just on top of all the latest fashions and the trends. It's okay to be separate. I think Christian sojourners today need to relearn the value of separation from the wider culture. A sensible separation from the world. It used to be that in Christian churches, we feared something called worldliness. And I know that when I use the word, the word worldliness, you think of uh, women wearing poodle skirts or, or going to a malt shop or something. It belongs in some other decade far behind us. But we used to worry about things like that. What is, what is the influence of the world doing to us and to our families? And I'm only 34, and it makes me feel like a fuddy-duddy even to talk about these things. But it used to be that this is what the church was concerned about. And even though it seems fundamentalistic, yes, part of that insulation from the world was watching the media that we take in. That in the church there were books that were not read, there were movies that were not watched, there were television shows that were not watched because they had no savor of the gospel in them. And we're losing that sort of discernment in the church. We don't even call it discernment anymore, we call it legalism. Or worse, we say that, well, we've got Christian liberty and we use our freedom in Christ as an opportunity to indulge the flesh. We convince ourselves that the best way to connect with our unbelieving neighbors is to watch the things they watch and to listen to the things that they listen to and to read the things that they read. And so we are bringing all sorts of filth into our homes through all sorts of screens and all sorts of pages and all sorts of sound bites. And it's no wonder that the values of the unbelieving world are quickly becoming the values of those who are raised in believing households. And we have lost the value of a, a sensible separation from the world and its influences. My brothers, these things ought not to be. James challenges us. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? John tells us further that we need to know that this world is passing away along with its desires. So we need to remember that sojourners in the world, we need to have some sensible form of separation, that, that we need to exercise Christian discernment. It's part of uh, the, the legacy of, of believers that there should be some visible moral separation between those who profess faith in Christ and those who do not know him at all, and there ought to be a separation among his sojourners. Now, I know the pushback. And I agree with the pushback that we can take separation too far. And it is altogether possible to move from being uh, separate to, to moving into uh, separationism. And there's a difference between those two. There, you know, I'm, I'm just coining this phrase, separationism. Uh, but I think you know what I'm talking about. And there's a difference, and the difference has to do with where our hope lies. If we are simply looking for separation, it's because we are guarding our hearts and our families because we believe that the Lord is working in us and preparing us for something better. But when separationism, separationism rules the day, we're hoping really in ourselves. 
We're hoping in the way that we can create our, our own little uh, Christian uh, utopia. That we can prove our devotion to the Lord by abstaining from taboos. And if we can create our perfect little Christian subculture here on earth, then we'll all be safe from temptation and sin and the snares of the world. And it is altogether possible to move from being a sojourner to a separationist if our hope is in the wrong place. It is altogether possible to move from discernment into legalism and from holiness into Pharisaism. Now, for most of us, I believe that is not the side of the horse we are most likely to fall off of. But it is possible. And you can do a quick survey through church history. And you can see all the attempts to do exactly that throughout the years. We want to point our fingers at the, the monks in the monasteries or the Anabaptists down in Pennsylvania or the Shakers up in Maine or the, the Pietists in Germany or those weird communes out there in the desert somewhere. And we have all sorts of examples of this sort of thing, but the truth is that this is sometimes what happens. The truth is also that this sort of separationism is also a refusal to be a sojourner with the Lord in the world. When we lower our hopes from what the Lord will do in us to what we can do here, it is an attempt to make our home here and now. To refuse to continue uh, to recognize that the Lord has called us to be people who do not belong in a place that we do not belong. And we set up our own little establishment where the world can't come in and we never go out. And we think that we're safe while we're waiting for all these things to happen. And if only sojourning was that easy. Sojourning is not that easy. Because we are called to be separate, but we are, we are also called to be a blessing. This is the third aspect of faithful sojourning, that we are called to be a blessing in the world. And we see this in Jacob. There are lots of things we could, we could talk about with Jacob coming before Pharaoh, the fact that he seems completely unimpressed by human power, or he seems yet again to be talking about how hard his life has been. But I want you to notice those, that repeated phrase at the beginning and the end of his very short conversation shows us the way that he interacted with Pharaoh. It says twice, when he showed up and when he left, it said, Jacob blessed Pharaoh. That's pretty unique. Normally you would greet someone, and there's a, a different word for that, but here it says he blessed him. It means probably that when Jacob came into Pharaoh's presence as an old man, though he was, he probably lifted his hands in prayer like I do at the end of our worship services, and he, he prayed that the Lord would pour a blessing upon Pharaoh and a blessing upon his kingdom. The Lord would be gracious and kind and lift up his countenance upon Pharaoh. He wanted to, to direct this man who, who was considered by his own people to be a God incarnate, he wanted to draw his eyes to the truth of the only God who is, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And it says that Jacob blessed Pharaoh. You know, we're coming to the end of Jacob's story. Sometimes when you come to the end of an era, maybe you're leaving a job or a town uh, or just coming to a different stage in your life. Sometimes your senses are clued in to those things that are most important. I think this is what's happening in Jacob. Because for the next two chapters, what we will see Jacob doing over and over and over again is lifting his hands in blessing. Chapter 48 is all about the blessing on Manasseh and Ephraim. 
And then in chapter 49, it's all about the blessing of his 12 sons. And Jacob raises his hands and he foretells what God will do with them. And he pours out and he prays for God's blessing upon his own family. But before he gets to his own family, there is a blessing also for Pharaoh, this pagan king in some other kingdom in a world where Jacob is coming merely as a sojourner, and yet he wants to make sure that Pharaoh's eyes are turned to the God of heaven. It is this very small picture of the promise, the other promise that the Lord gave to Abraham. Back in chapter 12, the Lord said, I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse you, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now there is a fullness to that promise, and that fullness is Jesus Christ. The perfect seed of Abraham, the sinless one who came to extend the blessing of salvation to people of every tribe and tongue and nation and language, and in the one who is the seed of Abraham, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Yes, that's the fulfillment, but along the way, all of God's people, all of the descendants of Abraham, all the children who belong to Abraham by faith are meant to be pointers along the way to that same blessing. You see, Jacob comes into the land, and I think he has this this sense of a covenantal obligation. His work is not complete if he simply comes in and sequesters himself, cloisters himself off in a a closed-off little area with his own family and says, you know what, we're just going to take care of ourselves over here. Thank you very much. There is a covenantal obligation for Jacob to live with blessing toward the world the Lord has put him in. Most commentators look at this very large section that comes directly after that, and they say this is an example that the Lord actually was blessing Pharaoh. We see this this chronicle of the hardship of the Egyptians, but it tells us several times that Joseph wasn't taking and pocketing all the money again and again and again. He took the money, he took the livestock, he took the lands, and it all became Pharaoh's. And this is this picture again. The Lord is blessing those who deal well with God's people. It's a stark contrast to the Pharaoh of Exodus, by the way, who refuses to deal well with God's people, Israel. And instead, he watches Egypt fall apart, and famine, and plague, and darkness, and death. And God blesses those who bless him, and he curses those who curse him, but he makes his people a blessing. Jacob had this covenantal obligation I think, to be a blessing in the world. And dear brothers and sisters, so do you. Because that's what sojourners do. Jesus said that he is the light of the world. And yet he's put that light in the hearts of all those who belong to him. And he has said, you are the light of the world. And as you walk through the world, as you sojourn with me, make sure that that light shines so that others see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. What do we do? Do we we simply seclude ourselves and divide ourselves? And do we form our own little perfect community where nobody can go in and we never go out? Or do we walk with the Lord as a blessing in the world? I think we need to pray that the Lord would help us to know how to do that. In our jobs, in our families, in our neighborhoods, especially in our church. 
I think by God's grace, we are really good at being different. Not because we are really good at separating or, or we are extra special. But one of the questions we need to ask ourselves as a church that professes to be a community of Jesus Christ is how are we being a blessing in our neighborhood or our community? How are we allowing the light of Christ to shine beyond the walls of this place that we're gathering week after week? How can we live in the world in blessing? Because that's what sojourners do. Now, I want to press your patience with one more. I didn't tell you there were four at the beginning because I knew uh, you, you wouldn't deal with it. But there's, there's one more we need to see, and it's the element of expectancy. This is how sojourners walk in the Lord with a certain expectancy of what God will do in them. Look at verse 27. It's this summary statement at the end. Thus, Israel settled in the land of Egypt, in the land of Goshen, and they gained possessions in it, and they were fruitful, and they multiplied greatly. It's this summary statement, the happy ending, that this sojourn is actually going pretty well. But that's a strange summary statement, especially following 14 verses that we're not talking about Israel settling at all. You notice that. Verses 13 through 26 are all about the hardship of the Egyptians and the fact that they are losing money and losing livestock and losing land and selling themselves into slavery for food. And then the summary statement, thus Israel settled. And it's not as though Moses, you know, absent-minded Moses is riding along in Egypt. Oh, yes, Israel. I forgot to tell you what happened with Israel. No, 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 no. This is intentional. This is a juxtaposition. He is comparing this is what happened to Egypt and this is what happened to God's people. He's drawing your attention to just how well Jacob's family were doing in Egypt. Surprisingly well in a time of famine when all the locals are losing the shirts off their backs. God's people are doing very, very well in this sojourn. The same thing happens at the beginning of that section, verses 12 and 13. Take a look back there. Joseph provided his father, his brothers, and all his father's household with food, according to the number of their dependents. Now, there was no food in all the land, for the famine was severe. Do you see that comparison? Food for Israel, no food in the land. It's a direct comparison, and he brings it back at the end. And the whole point is to show us just how well this sojourn in Egypt is going, which ought to make us pause when finally we come to the end, and Jacob gathers his son to him, and he says, you know, things are going so well here in Egypt that I need you to promise that you will not let my body rest in this place of plenty. Really? Why not? I mean, if there is anything that the Egyptians are good at, it is burying people. We're still uncovering the people that they buried in opulence and magnificent thousands of years after, and you're here and things are going so well in Egypt. Why don't you just settle down, Jacob? That seems extreme. He makes him swear a second time, swear that you will take me and bury me with my fathers. You know, he has a certain plot of land in mind when he talks about the place of his father's burial. It's just a little field, the field of Machpelah, next to the Oaks of Mamre. In fact, that's the only way you would have known that you were there. You had no G GPS, but you saw all those tall oak trees. Oh, yeah, here's the field. Now we remember. It was sort of a, a nothing in the middle of Canaan. 
but it was bought at full price in front of the elders of a local town. And after three generations of sojourning, it is the only parcel of Canaan that at this time could be said to legally belong to Abraham's family. It was a place of promise. It's just a little thing. It's just a foretaste. I don't know if any of you, when your mother was making cookies, or especially brownies in my household, and you got to lick the spatula at the end. And there wasn't much on there. And I got really good at scraping out the bowl and getting every last little morsel. It was just this little thing, but it was a foretaste that there was more to come. This is the expectancy that Jacob has. Take me back to that field, out of this place of plenty where everything seems to be going so well. I want to be identified with the Lord and with his sojourning people because my hope is in him, not in the place where things are going so well for me. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 11. We're going to end with this. Because in this chapter dealing with God's faithful people, it tells us something about sojourners who are willing to walk in expectancy with the Lord. Hebrews chapter 11, beginning in verse 13. Russell, Russell. Hebrews chapter 11, beginning in verse 13. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them, greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. They've been thinking of the land from which they had gone out. They would have had opportunity to return, but as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. And here's the promise. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. Did you hear that? What happens when we walk in expectancy? When even if things are going well for us in the world, we refuse to allow our hopes to drop below the horizon of what the Lord is doing in our lives. To drop below the horizon of his promise that Jesus told us he is going away to prepare a better place for us, better than everything we know now, even if we feel so very much at home where we are. It tells us when you seek that better homeland, the one that Christ has bought and and made by the sacrifice of his blood and the promise that he's given us by his resurrection to deal with the sin that separates us from God, he says, God is not ashamed to be called their God for he has prepared for them a city. Brothers and sisters, what does it mean to be a sojourner in the world? It means to walk in expectancy, to trust in what the Lord is doing through his Son, to trust in his promises and to know when we walk with him in hope and expectancy, he is not ashamed to be called ours. Please join me in prayer. Lord our God, we thank you that you have given us these glorious promises. 
We thank you that as we are your sojourners in the world, you feed and sustain and walk with us. You keep us at every turn along the way. Oh, Lord, raise our eyes to what you will do in us. Through Jesus Christ, the Son whom you have given, keep us, O Lord, by your Spirit. Make us a blessing in the world. Keep us from the temptation of sin, the pride of the eyes, and the lust of the flesh. Keep us walking, O Lord, in integrity with you, but keep us looking in expectancy to what you will do and believing in your promises, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.